You know what I want to talk about this morning? Um, it just strikes me that we are really living through historic change. I mean, are, are you, any of you getting that sense? I mean, there, there is a lot of, of things just changing so drastically, and I know we're all so polarized on, on our view of how that change is taking place. You know, some of us see it as a terrible thing, and, and some of us see it as a good thing. It's just, it's not really so much that. It's that we're living through real, deep, and fundamental change. Some of it's really frightening. I mean, the world is a scary place right now. It's unbalanced. It's kind of, or it's, I should say, at least it's balanced on a razor's edge. And so here we are in this world trying to live our lives and do the things that we do, but with this backdrop. And I don't know about you, but it's really easy for me to get pulled into that. You know, um, It's really easy for me to uh, get sucked into the 24-7 cable news cycle and radio and all this if I'm not careful. And I've done that in the past. And for the last few years, I've kind of just turned it all off. And now it's coming back in again. It's kind of seeping back in again because there's just so much going on that seems like it's going to have a big effect on our lives. And the temptation is is to see these macro events, see these big events as the significant thing that kind of overshadows our lives, overshadows the details that we walk through every day. Almost as if, you know, what are these details matter in the face of all of this that's going on and we keep getting lost in it and getting pulled in becoming more and more the, uh, the political junkie or more and more the person who is just sitting in front of Fox News all the time or CNN or whatever, you know. And it begins to seem more and more like the micro is irrelevant. And churches pick up on this too. There are so many churches and so many pastors that are, that are talking about politics, talking about prophecy as it relates to politics and as it relates to current events and what they're seeing in the, in the cards and the tea leaves and, of course, the pages of Scripture. And so all of this, including the social justice aspects of it, are getting pulled into church and getting pulled into our awareness. And there's nothing wrong with being macro-aware. Of course, of course not. In fact, all of us here are pretty macro-aware. We all have our viewpoints. You'll just never hear them. And I don't know, you might be wondering why we don't bring in or talk about some of these macro events, about politics, about things that affect our nation and, of course, affect our lives so profoundly as well. And there's a reason for that. When we started The Effect, we decided that our mission was going to be intensely micro. We decided that we were going to be working with individual peoples Because sometimes when we work with the macro, it becomes another form of drug. It becomes a form of avoidance of the actual details of our lives, which is really the only things that we can control. We can't control the macro. It's going to go where it goes. You can vote. You know, you can do certain things. But for most of us, the macro is outside of our control. And if we spend our time there at the expense of the details of our lives that we can make choices and decisions over. Then we're out of balance. And that's really where we need to keep our focus, we believe. If you take a look at um, John 18, right there in your inserts, and, and uh, I don't know who's back there, if Brandon's back there or Sean's back there, but Sean's back there, okay. John 18, right at verse 33, Therefore Pilate, entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? This is a scene right before he's sentenced to death. And Jesus answers, 
Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered him, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. What Jesus is telling him, what Jesus is telling us, not just in this particular scene, but with his whole life, is that he was working exclusively within the micro, exclusively within the intensely micro-spiritual condition. You know, this is what he's trying to get across to us. The only way that he affected or worked within what people saw as social justice was within the micro. People see Jesus as a social justice reformer. But when you look at the record in the New Testament, he's working with one person at a time. Because he's not afraid to talk to a woman, to give woman credence, to give a woman the, the focus of his attention or a child. He is breaking all sorts of social taboos within his own culture. And yes, that is revolutionary. But he's not working at that level. He's not working at the macro level. He's working at the micro level, always intensely, person to person, face to face, embrace to embrace. At Matthew 22, at verse 15, the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trip him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. See, they're really buttering him up here, right? Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now, you've got to understand, this was one of the hot-button issues. I mean, this was like, I don't know, in our culture, immigration, affirmative action, our own tax code, same-sex marriage. I mean, you just go down the list of the most divisive and hot political or social issues in our day. This was it. Because in their culture, the Roman oppressors, the occupiers, were levying these completely onerous taxes that were then administered by Jews that they hated even more so. To pay taxes or not was a huge issue. And the zealots were pushing this issue as a way of inciting sedition against Rome. And so they're coming to Jesus with this hot issue because they figure any way he answers, he's going down. But they're thinking macro, right? Jesus isn't thinking that way. Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and he said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. You see what he's doing? He's taking us right from the, mac from the macro right back into the micro. He doesn't stay there. They think that they've got him trapped because of a macro expression, but he brings it right back. Same thing he's trying to do to every single one of us, right back to the micro, because spirituality is intensely micro, by definition, by nature. Religion is macro, but spirituality is micro. Jesus is always working in the micro within the larger context, 
always trying to get us back into this place. And, I, and think about it. Even if you work in the macro, if you work in politics, if you work in policy, let's say, if you work in something that is dealing with larger issues, how do you experience the macro? How do you experience those larger issues? Only one at a time, right? Even if you work there, the macro exists for us only as a mental concept. When we talk about nations and when we talk about armies and and global movements, that's just a mental concept. What do we actually experience day to day? It's one thing at a time, one event at a time, one person at a time. We don't experience anything global until the moment that it becomes micro again. One moment, one face, one decision at a time. That's the only way we as human beings can experience anything in life. I think it was about, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago when CD-ROMs were still big. <laughs> Remember CD-ROMs? Yeah, they're, they're like non-existent anymore. But uh, an astronomy program came out called Redshift, and this thing I just thought was the greatest thing. And I plugged it into my Macintosh, and it actually had a map of the solar system and the stars beyond. And you could, with your mouse, you could push through and go anywhere you wanted to go in the, in the solar system. I thought, this is great. I want to fly out to, to Saturn and Uranus and, and see all the rings and the planets. And the, and, and, and I thought, you know, kind of like those science fiction movies where you see the sky and it's got like three moons and all these things. I thought, oh, this is going to be great. And as I started to move out, everything just looked like a star field. Everything was a star field. And then I'd get up to one moon and I could see the moon, or I'd get up to one planet and I could see the planet, and everything. And I started, it started to dawn on me. The universe is so big. The solar system is so big. You can only be close to one thing at a time. Everything else looks like a star because it's so small and it's so far away. Here I thought I could look at you know, multiple planets all at the same No, you're looking at one thing and a star field. This is kind of the way it is with the macro and the micro. We can imagine all of this stuff in the macro but we can only be close to one thing at a time. Where we live our lives is right here and right now. And if we aren't focused on the micro, we're going to miss everything that is really important to our lives. I was watching the news, because I'm doing that again now, and I saw the story on the Gatlinburg fire. Are you guys all aware of this? The fire in Tennessee that just roared through and just took down, I don't know how many homes, hundreds of homes and, and several lives. And they were interviewing this man who lost his home and you could just look, you could just see in his face the shell shock. You're looking at his eyes and they're just kind of vacant and he's got ash and dirt all over his face and his hair is disheveled and he's just talking about it's terrible, it's terrible. He couldn't even find really any words. The macro of this fire that we absorb on that level kind of as a concept all at once came down to one man and one house and a dirty face, and the loss of everything that he owned. It's like that. Think about the president-elect. He is at the center of a macro firestorm right now. And we're watching all these things as he builds his cabinet and he goes through transition. If anybody is macro, if anybody can affect the macro, it's him, right? But how does he experience the macro? 
one staff member at a time, one cabinet member at a time, one dinner at a time. For him, the macro is the room that he's sitting in, whether it's the Oval Office or some other office. You know, it's the phone that he's tweeting on. That's it. That's the macro. It comes down to one thing. And we have to understand this. That whatever is happening out there in the macro, life is always lived and always experienced in the micro. And here's the point that I really want you to put on your refrigerators. The quality of our lives is always determined by the quality of our relationships. Not circumstances, not macro events, but the quality of our micro relationships. The quality of our lives will always reflect the quality of our relationships. Now, as always, it's not an either-or proposition. It's both and. So as we go through life with the macro in our periphery, we still should be focused on the micro because that's where everything goes. Take a look at at, uh, Matthew 16. Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That line there, what does it profit to gain the whole world and lose your soul, lose your life, lose who you really are, is usually looked at and understood in terms of gaining the world and losing heaven. It's a heaven or hell salvation issue is the way that this is normally looked at in Western Christianity. But I want you to take a look at it in terms of this macro and this micro. How about looking at this saying of Jesus about being lost in the macro and losing the micro, the spiritual connection that's only available right here, right now, in this singular moment. When you think about it, what good would it do to donate to global missions or global causes, to maybe go out and picket or protest or or follow the news 24-7, if you're not able to see the need right in front of your face and help a person who's in your path at this given moment? If you can't do that, how is it that we're actually aware? How is it that we're actually in relationship? Mother Teresa talks about this all the time. She was brilliant. I put a couple of her quotes here. In this life, we cannot do great things. We can only do small things with great love. See where she's trying to take us? Out of the conception of doing these long legacy items, these big things, and bringing it down to this moment right here, right now. She said that Jesus said, love one another. He didn't say love the whole world. (laughs) How do you do that? How would you do that if you tried? It is easy to love the people far away. It's not always easy to love those close to us. It is easier to give a cup of rice to relieve hunger than to relieve the loneliness and pain of someone unloved in our own home. Bring love into your home for this is where our love for each other must start. See what she's doing here? You know, we always are bringing to mind the Good Samaritan parable, right? You know the story. There's a man who is attacked by robbers and left for dead on the side of the road. And a Pharisee walks by. And a chief priest walks by. 
and they just pass him. And then a Samaritan, the lowest of the low in Jewish culture of that time. It'd be like a black person in the 50s in the South is the way they felt about Samaritans. He walks by, sees the man, moves to compassion, takes him, binds up his wounds as best he can, takes him to an inn, gives the innkeeper money for his stay, and says, on my return, if he owes you anything, I'll pay it. And Jesus says, who is your neighbor? Now, this is always looked at from a moral perspective. Doing the right thing, doing the wrong thing. But take a look at it again from this macro-micro perspective. The two religious authorities moving through with their minds set on the big picture, with their minds set on how they were going to administer the temple, administer the people, do everything that they needed to do, blowing through the countryside to get to the important place, going from L.A. to New York. Forget about Nebraska. We're just going to where we need to go in this macro mindset, this macro concept. They didn't even see the person that was right in front of them. It's a Samaritan who can do that. The one who isn't supposed to have any moral standing. Jesus is making points here that we must not miss. And it's not just all about obedience and following the rules and being a moral person. It's about being present. It's about being able to step away from the temptation to get lost in this big picture and to avoid what is right in front of us because it's always riskier, it's always scarier to deal with what is right in front of us than some concept or an image on the TV. This is what he's trying to get us to understand. So what's our basic purpose? What's our reason for being human? Is it to change the world? Is it to leave a legacy? Or is there something else that Jesus is pointing to? There's a new school of thought on addiction. And Nina brought to my attention a a short animated uh, video that just brilliantly captured it. And the premise of this new school of thought is that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. You know that uh, experiment they do with the rat? They put the rat in a cage and they give him a water bottle that's water and another water bottle that's laced with heroin or cocaine. And the rat will keep going back to the cocaine or the heroin over and over until it finally dies of an overdose. And that was supposed to show the, the, uh, the power of the drugs and the power of the addiction to the drugs. But the interesting thing about that experiment, it was always done with one rat in a cage alone. So someone looked at that and said, hey, wait a minute. How about if we create Rat Park? And so he created a huge cage that had everything that rats could possibly want. There were tunnels to go through and balls to play with and sawdust and lots of other rats so that they could interact and have all the sex that they wanted and have all the food that they wanted and they could make little rats and raise those. And then they put the water bottle in and the heroin bottle in and guess what? The rats rarely ever touched the heroin and just drank the water. What they found was is that the drug had no pull as long as The rats had what they needed to be rats. Well, those are rats and not people. But then they cited the Vietnam War, where 20% of our servicemen in Vietnam were using heroin to get through their tour. And people back in the States were petrified that we were going to have hundreds of thousands of of, uh, heroin-crazed junkies roaming the streets when the troops came home. But when the troops came home, 95% of them simply stopped using heroin. What happened there? Well, they moved from the cage 
where they were ready to be killed or kill at any moment. And it was such a horrible experience that the drugs sounded pretty good. But when they got back to their homes and their families and their jobs, it was rat park for people and they didn't need it anymore. It's about connection. Brene Brown is brilliant here in her clinical studies where she says the reason that we're here, what we're neurobiologically wired for is connection. That's our deepest purpose. That's who we are. Jesus is telling us exactly the same thing, especially at John 17. Nothing focuses your attention like a deadline, right? Well, Jesus is facing the ultimate deadline of his death, of his crucifixion. And in that final prayer that he prays, it's, Father, make them one. Make them all one, as you and I are one. It's about connection. It's about oneness. This is what is our basic purpose. Connection is lived out in relationship. Last week we were talking about the Trinity, but we were talking about it in a way that we normally don't in Western Christianity. We were talking about it as a circle dance. We were talking about as the, the Greek dance where you spin and spin until multiple people and dancers are blurred into a ring, blurred into a single entity. We talked about it in relation to the electron cloud where you have a proton and a neutron in the center and not neatly orbiting electrons, but just the probability of where they might be within a certain space. And the fact that this motion, this giving and receiving that blurs into one thing, is what is meant by a Godhead who is love. There's a little quote here at the bottom. That God is somehow plurality in oneness, that is intrinsically relational, is the logical necessity of the statement, God is love. Love needs an object. And the early church interestingly interestingly understood first the Godhead as Father and Son. The first creed in 325 at at Nicaea talked about we believe in the Father and the Son. And then at the end of the creed, we believe also in the Holy Spirit. They were there, but then 70 years later at the Council of Chalcedon, then they elaborated that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. And then the Western Church elaborated again and from the Son. And so you have two people who can have a relationship, but if that relationship is real, it's going to produce something. It's going to generate something, something concrete. A man and a woman and their love generates a baby. Your relationships with your friend generate some kind of concrete expression of your love, something that's tangible to other people. This relationship in motion, this circle dance of the Trinity produced everything that is, generated everything that is, generated us. And so if our relationship isn't generating something tangible and concrete, how can we say that it's real? This is how we should really understand the cross. If you really want to think about it, the death of Jesus Understood in terms of this circle dance. Understood in terms of this freely giving and receiving that just morphs into one another. The willingness and the ability to be completely vulnerable, to be completely open, to be completely in submission to the relationship. Is Jesus pouring himself out on the cross, withholding nothing, including us in the dance? I know we talk about it in terms of mechanics and in terms of of an entry into into heaven. But think of it this way. It's the logical 
motion of a lover, of a giver and a receiver, of a relator, I suppose, that holds nothing back, ever. Always transparent, always present, always vulnerable. And if you want to think about it as we're approaching Christmas, this is the way that we should also understand the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, for him to be born in complete vulnerability, naked, as an infant, to the poorest of the poor, to the anavim, those who are oppressed and marginalized and completely dependent on God because of that. These are the deeper truths. These are the principles that are preserved for us in our scriptures that we will miss if we're not paying attention, if we're not looking at them the way Jesus is trying to get us to understand. In Jesus, we see exactly what generative relationship looks like in human form. Always giving, always available, always open. What the attributes are of such relationship and what the balance is between the macro and the micro. Remember, the quality of our lives is always determined by the quality of our relationships, not macro circumstances. Now, many of us are struggling with our primary relationships. We know this. We talk to you. You talk to us. It's one of the privileges of being in community and being in relationship. We get to hear what's going on in your lives when you share with us. And we know how difficult it is out there. Many of us have marital problems, difficult marital problems, problems with addiction, parenting, problems with our children. Our children have problems with their parents. Dating. Dating issues and business and friends, all of these things are wearing us down and we're looking for relief in some way or another. Now, if everything that we're talking about here can't help us there in those very real relationships and those very real problems that are causing us so much grief, then we might as well go turn on Fox News and just zone out, you know. There's got to be a connection here. There's got to be something. How is Jesus instructing us through his birth, through his death, through everything in between and beyond to teach us how to relate? What is it that he's really giving us? If we take marriage as a basic principle, maybe we can start to understand a little bit more about how we can approach relationship that can change the basic attitude and the way that we experience life. What do we expect of marriage? What do you expect of marriage? Some of you are married. Some of you are married multiple times. Some of us are married multiple times. Some of us are divorced right now. What did you expect? What do you expect of marriage? Are you looking for a soulmate? The one person out there that will complete you? The other half to your half that will make you whole? Is there something out there that you are going to be bringing into your life that will transform your life? that will transform the way that you live. Is that what we're expecting? Are we looking for that love at first sight? You know, it's interesting that romantic love is relatively new in the West. It only goes back to the high Middle Ages, which was about 1100 to 1350. It goes back to chivalry. It goes back to the, the code of courtly love between the knight and his lady that he served. Interestingly enough, and maybe ironically, that courtly love was always platonic. It was non-physical, but it had all of this emotional content. It had all of this feeling of dedication. 
you know the troubadours sang of this love in their poetry which has come forward in time to us and created a culture of romantic love we now in the west think that love precedes marriage love needs to precede marriage we have to find the right person that may be one person or one of a very few people that has the chemistry and the attraction and everything that we need so that a marriage can then ensue. But in medieval times, not to mention ancient times, marriages were largely arranged. In Jesus' day, with the ancient Jews, they were all arranged. And they were arranged for political reasons. They were arranged for business reasons. They were arranged to continue bloodlines or to put houses together. Often, in Jesus' day, the bride and the groom never met each other until the day of their betrothal. And in Jewish, ancient Jewish custom, a betrothal was as good as a marriage. You needed a certificate of divorce to get out of the betrothal, not to mention the wedding. That wouldn't take place for maybe a year or two. And so, the interesting thing is, is that those marriages, and that seems so bizarre to us, so inhuman to us, that two people who are not even married, you have this stick them together and be married, those marriages are much more stable than our marriages are here in the West based on all of our love. So what's going on? What is it about relationship that we're missing? In the West, we think that love has to precede marriage. In the East, marriage is where you learn how to love. You get the difference? An Easterner once said, in the West, you all take hot soup and put it in a cold plate, and slowly it becomes cold. We in the East take cold soup, put it on a pot, on the fire, and slowly it becomes warm and becomes hot. There's a difference of the way of looking at these relationships that are very, very distinct. In the West, we seem to be awaiting something from the outside that's going to come in and complete us. In the East, it is pouring out something from the inside that transforms the relationship. It's something that we pour out, not something that comes in. Now, of course, I'm not saying you can just go out and just marry the next person you meet on the street and you're going to be able to make that work. Again, balance, right? Yes, we can be looking at the attraction. We can be looking at the chemistry. We can be looking at all those things. But with this awareness this intense awareness that still the marriage is going to be a place where we actually learn how to love this person. A few weeks back we had a quote that was really stark. The day that you wake up and say you married the wrong person, that's the day your marriage begins. Because once all of that clears away, and it always does, is there still the intention to stay? Is there the intention to continue the journey? Is there the intention to continue to learn how to love? Do we continue pouring out constantly everything that needs to be poured out so that we can learn to love? You know, I can tell you after being married 22 years, to get enough perspective, to start to get the sense of this significant portion of my life being poured out. As I watch Marion now dedicating and pouring out over half her life to me and our children, that's a huge statement. To continue to pour your life out, to continue to be present when the times are really not good 
and then they get better because you stayed present as best you could and you continued to just pour out. Joining this circle dance, joining this motion that keeps on moving if we will just join into the dance. It's a different way of looking at relationship. Not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Are you struggling with your relationships right now? Are there relationships that are really driving you down? How in the world are we going to change that? How are we going to apply what Jesus is trying to show us? I want to ask you a few questions and let's see if we can put a little bit more of a finer point on this. Are you comparing your relationship, any relationship you have, to someone else's? Or to an ideal standard in your mind, what you believe it should be? Keeping your mind in the far-off macro space of expectation and missing the micro-moments of connection. In other words, are you sending rice to China rather than looking in the face of the person across the table from you? Are you still pouring out all you have and all that you are? Have you ever? Or are you trying to avoid getting hurt? There was a movie that I saw once and woman asked the man, when you are having a conversation, are you listening or are you just waiting to speak? You know, we've had conversations with both those people, haven't we? And you know the difference immediately. Are you listening or are you waiting to speak? Are you still pouring out all you have or are you trying to avoid getting hurt? All the difference in the world as to whether you're going to be able to connect or not Are you submitting to relationship? And that's a word that we hate, submission, right? But submission doesn't mean being a doormat, stuffing down who you really are, never getting your way. And it certainly doesn't mean being abused. But are you holding the relationship, the connection between you and the beloved as something greater than yourself, more important than satisfying satisfying immediate desires? Are you doing that? Are you being vulnerable, willing to be imperfect, honest about your flaws to yourself and to your other? Are you willing to be seen, really seen, as you are, without defense or justification? Are you willing to be the spouse, be the friend that you want your spouse or friend to be before they are? Are you willing to love first, say, I love you first, to be the initiator, to risk everything with no guarantee of return? Or are you waiting for the other to act first in order to remove your risk? Are you willing to do all of this, be this vulnerable and hurtable, knowing you can't control the other, knowing that the other may never meet you halfway or pour out themselves as you are pouring out? And after being hurt or betrayed or abandoned by another, are you willing to be hurt again? Not by allowing the same person to continue to hurt you, but by willing to be vulnerable again, open again, to pour out again. If not, what can we ever expect out of our relationships? Jesus is saying and showing with his life and words that a guarded life, 
a life lived behind defenses, a life avoiding the possibility of pain, is no life at all. A life that never connects. The only life worth living is a vulnerable life. A life willing to be completely poured out. Jesus says that such a life will always be beautiful and full of purpose and meaning, regardless of whether it ever conforms to our initial expectations. A life that can both anticipate and celebrate the macro concepts and ideals while never missing the detail of each micro heartbeat is what Jesus calls kingdom. That is kingdom. To live this way, intensely micro, vulnerable, is not going to guarantee the success of any one relationship. We have to understand that. We have to know that. To live this way does not guarantee the success of any one relationship, but it will bring us into connection with every relationship and circumstance, whether there is a response or not. This is kingdom living, the opposite of addiction of any sort, whether it's political or substance abuse or anything else. And it's going to feel like love and it's going to feel like meaning, and it's going to feel like purpose, and it's going to feel like kingdom. That's where we need to go. Let's pray. And Father, thank you for showing us the way. Thank you for showing us what this looks like. It's so hard to do. It's so scary to do. To live in the kind of open, transparent, and vulnerable connection that you're showing us. But help us to take the baby steps. Help us to let go of more and more day by day and find out that it's not so bad, that things do come back, that people are trustworthy, and ultimately that you are, so that more and more we can live fearlessly in this relationship that you call kingdom. Thank you, Father. Thank you for everything. Thank you for this season. Thank you for the birth of what you look like in human form that we will be celebrating in a few weeks. And thank you for the gift of each other. We give you permission to take us wherever you would like us to go. Help us to keep stepping in that direction and to never forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.